Welcome to the Modernizer Die Podcast, CFML News Edition, where we keep you up to date with everything going on in the Cold Fusion community. We'll share the latest news on events, releases to engines, frameworks, libraries, and tools, as well as spotlighting quality content from the community. Hello and welcome to the Modernize or Die Podcast, CFML News Edition. It is February 1st, 2022. This is episode 133. I am Eric Peterson, and today I am joined by Mr. Brad Wood. How you doing, Brad? Uh, yeah, I'm doing great. I, it feels like it just the other day. It was episode 100. I can't believe it's 133 already. That's awesome. Yes, it is. Once a week, every week. That's not true. Sometimes we take breaks. <laughs> well, Thanks. we should just we should just do it twice a week, every, every once in a while, and then it'll kind of average out. There you go. <laughs> As a news podcast, it feels hard for us to, like, prep in advance, you know, like if we did two in one week, it just wouldn't really fly. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Order Solutions, the makers of all your favorite boxes. There's a few ways you can say thank you, liking and subscribing these videos on YouTube or subscribing in your favorite podcast app of choice. And by heading over to CFCast, signing up for an account there. It releases new CFML training content every week. Or by buying Ordis's book, 102 Cold Box Quick Tips and Tricks, until the Command Box book comes out, which I think we're up to 105 tips now. We're adding one every week, right? Until Brad writes it. Right, Brad? Right, right. Uh, my evil plan is to have everyone else write it for me, so it's all going according to plan so far. If by going to plan means nothing's changed, then yes, it is going to plan. <laughs> uh, and then finally, you can support us on Patreon. We love our Patreon supporters. We have 96% of this podcast supported from our Patreon supporters, and we'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. But let's jump into some news for today. News, yay. The first one up is the State of the Cold Fusion Union survey has been released for 2022. This is something that we harp on every year when it comes out. It helps us know where the community's at and what we need to support, especially engine-wise, and where we can focus more of our attention if there's um, a gap that needs to be filled or uh, training that can we can address some different <clears throat> areas. So we please encourage you to go and fill out the survey so we can get that information. It's only uh, 50 questions. takes like five minutes. We did uh, add a couple questions this year, and we removed a couple. We swapped a couple around. Um, we modified a few of the, the options based on, on what uh, the trends were in the last survey. Um, but it's pretty much, uh, pretty much the same questions uh, every year that we can, we can kind of see the trends on it. So, Also, after you're done taking it, since you're one of the lucky few Cold Fusion people who pays attention to Cold Fusion social media, send it to uh, everyone you know who also does Cold Fusion, who probably doesn't listen to podcasts or doesn't you know watch the Cold Fusion hashtag on Twitter or whatever, because uh, we want to get as many people as possible. Normally, they, we get around 500 people last year the uh, number of respondents was a little low. So hoping to get the numbers back up. Um, and we also, we got some direct input from uh, Adobe as well. The new product manager um, had some suggestions because Adobe does um, 
look at the answers to this and they also read all of the comments, including the ones that are not always so nice to Adobe. So uh, do know that your your valuable feedback is used by not only Ortis and the greater Cold Fusion community, but even the Adobe Cold Fusion team as well. Awesome. Thank you. Next up, in case you missed it, last Friday was an Ordis webinar, the first of the year. It was on CF Wire with Grant Copley. CB Wire, right? CB Wire. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So this is about building modern reactive CFML apps using very little JavaScript. You can check that out now over on CFCasts. And I was just editing a little thing on the slug because the slug ended in .js, which, as you can imagine, <laughs> kind of had some issues. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, Coldbox is routing, I, I believe, has some uh, some built-in conventions when your routes end in an extension, don't they? They do, and it was <laughs> not what we wanted. So now it is fixed. Nice. So fun fact, uh, this being CFCast is an inertia app, and if you navigated there just via the um, you know the UI, it handled it fine and updated the URL fine. It was just when you tried to link there. So fun times. Okay, uh, coming up here uh, at the end of the month is, mm. I believe, the inaugural meeting of the Hawaii Cold Fusion user group. So this was announced last week that it was coming back or starting or one of the three. This is going to be using CFCs in your ColdFusion applications, hosted by John Barrett. Friday, February 25th, uh, 5 p.m. Central Time, which I think is 1 p.m. Hawaii time. So meetup.com was nice enough to translate it into my nice. time zone. So Nice. I know that uh, John Barrett's working on a, a website for his new user group, and he was <laughs> asking me questions about uh, Content Box yesterday, so hopefully... We can help him get that figured out. It'd be great to see his new site on ContentBox if possible. So there is a site up, and I'll put it in the chat. It's cfhawaii.net. Um, it just is kind of a placeholder, though. I, I've, I visited it and then started to click around trying to see what I was missing and then realized that it's just a placeholder. It just says <laughs> Hawaii Cold Fusion User Group. So, But we're excited for their meetup. Again, anybody can join online February 25th, 2022 at 5 p.m. Central Time. Uh, Brad, you were on a podcast this, that was released this last week. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I hung out on uh, the CLive pod, CF Alive podcast, and uh, our, our topic of the day was Command Box Workflow Magic. Um, basically, just talking about uh, development workflows and how Command Box um, helps improve those. And we just kind of went through my list of favorite uh, Command Box modules, which included several of yours, uh, Eric, um, like .env. And, uh, did we talk about ngrok? I, don't know, did, I forget which ones. I had a whole list of them. We only made it through like half of them. We had to start <laughs> with, the, with the most important ones. But we just talked about um, you know ways that you can have a better workflow and get more done as a Cold Fusion developer using. Um, command box and all the the modules out there including the ones i didn't write which are fantastic so you can check that out over um, on the terratech.com uh podcast page it was about an hour long uh chat that we had awesome i noticed that the top module 
listed mentioned in this episode is the most important one. It is Command Box Bullet Train, <laughs> which makes Command Box look freaking cool. So, I mean, useful too, but let's be honest, it makes it look cool. Yep, cool times. Yeah, I was actually I was uh, just working with Scott Steinbeck this week, seeing about doing some improvements um, to how it lists servers in Bullet Train. And uh, we we're, were trying to figure out if you have more than one server in the same directory, how could we, you know, maybe merge that information or, you know, favor the running server. Um, and I was worried about the performance of, you know, checking if the servers are online because command box actually has to check and see if the port is bound to see if the server's running. And so uh, what came out of that is I got a nice little pull request yesterday from Scott um, switching our little, is the server running check over to using the PID file. Um, which is created when the server started and deleted when the server stops, uh, which is actually a pretty cool implementation. And it's sped up how long it takes to check if the server's running. Nice. Good things coming out from that. Well, go ahead and go take a listen to that episode in your podcast player of choice. That's Command Box Workflow Magic on the CF Alive podcast. Uh, next, we've mentioned a few times the Adobe Workshops led by Damien Brundonks. The first one is tomorrow, 9 to 4.30 Central European time. And then another one on March 9th, same times. You can register at Adobe's website, and we'll put the link in the show notes. So what are these workshops about? It is just titled Adobe Cold Fusion Workshop. Hmm. To learn how you Um. and your agency can leverage Cold Fusion to create amazing web content. Interesting. Yeah, I'm reading the little uh, little thing they have. Major features, how to use CFML, how to reuse code. It almost seems kind of like an intro on convincing someone to use Cold Fusion, though. It's a little vague, but they have a lot of things in the bullet points. Interesting. All right, well, it's free, so there you go. Okay, let's talk about CFCast update. We actually mentioned it earlier. But this week we released the CB Wire and Alpine JS work uh, webinar with Grant Copley. You can view that right now in our new Ordis Webinars 2022 series, which is free for everybody. So go ahead and go check that one out. Uh, the CFCast link appears to have the same .js issue yeah. that the, uh, Just the Ordis docs. blog did. <laughs> we'll get that fixed Just in the that. show notes. <laughs> Oh, conventions are great until they bite you in the butt. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, some upcoming conferences. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And uh, ones that you might have just missed, the Vue.js Nation conference was this last week. You can still go to the website, though, and register and watch the on-demand videos if Vue is your cup of tea. And those videos are free? Yes. Is that what I understand? Wow, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Um, the biggest things from there is... View 3 is becoming the default. They have their new doc site. Everything's finally migrating after, like, I don't know, a year and a half of talking about View 3. So <laughs> as soon as that finishes, I'll actually um, kind of look into that. <laughs> I was going to say, what version of View are, are we using on all of our projects? <clears throat> Almost everything's View 2 for us. So, And the good news hey. is it's you can pretty much use the same thing, but wasn't even interested in looking until it was the official new version. (laughs) Right on. Uh, So there was also DevNexus, which 
uh, was online for, I think, two years. Um, they're finally uh, back to in-person. So this is a big Java-ish um, conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I need to check and see if the Fusion Reactor guys are going to come back out and sponsor. Um, they've usually sponsored. Adobe's has sponsored there before. Um, but Luis and I both got talks accepted this year, which is exciting. So it is nearly impossible to get them to accept a talk that even like mentions Cold Fusion because they don't care. Unless you're any other JVM language in the world, in which case, yes, please talk. Uh, but Cold Fusion, they don't ever <laughs> want us to talk about that. So um, they accepted Luis's Alpine JS talk, uh, declaring reactive simplicity, and they accepted a rather old talk of mine. Uh, what's a pull request? Uh, how to contribute to open source? So I will gladly try to work some Cold Fusion <laughs> examples into my pull request talk. Um, but that's pretty exciting. That's a pretty big conference. I don't know if the numbers will be down, but they normally have like about two thousand people. And so much swag, so much just beautiful free stuff at that conference. Um, uh, also, um, Balbino, our, uh, one of our Java developers from El Salvador, who helps me work on Command Box, is uh, planning on attending with Luis and I. So anyway, if looking to learn some, uh, some fun stuff about just the Java ecosystem, um, it's always a fun one to go to uh, in person. And um, Luis and I always just kind of keep tabs on it because the, the Java ecosystem is the ecosystem that we kind of, you know, work and live in. So there's a lot of relevant stuff. Um, and it's not it's not strictly a Java conference. They have a lot of uh, workflow, uh, tooling, you know, talks. Um, you know, the sponsors are all like Oracle, Heroku, Microsoft, Red Hat. Um, there's a lot of really good general stuff about Docker, Kubernetes. So anyway, I'm excited about DevNexus. That's April uh, 12th to the 14th. So I don't know how many months, oh, what was that, two months? Two and a half months. Awesome. I, I feel like based on what you just said, you need to work in a meme um, about we don't talk about cold fusion. Based we on, don't like, talk about CFML. No, right? no. Oh my gosh. My kids had that song memorized. We had the piano music downloaded for them to learn. It plays on repeat. You um, and the rest of the world, I believe that's the top one hot one hundred uh, on Billboard. So my my oldest is is just anything Lin Manuel Miranda. She she loves, and so he has so much good stuff. But anyway, back to Cold Fusion. Yeah, I'll work on that. We don't talk about CFML meme. I got to rhyme with it. Word says that Lin Manuel actually changed Bruno's name to to work with that song. I forget what it was originally going to be. My daughter could probably tell me. But yeah, I changed it to Bruno, so it would rhyme with no, which works both in English and Spanish. Just genius. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the last conference we want to talk about is a bit of a teaser uh, into the box. 2022, oh, we, are looking, we are looking tentatively at the end of September. So keep that area around uh, open so you can join us at Into the Box 2022. Isn't that, isn't that where we were last year? <laughs> believe so but we've also had it in may so well yes yes normally but in may and we had pushed it back hoping for for travel restrictions to be lifted um all right well i mean that's what how many months do we have eight months until then good gosh i hope that people are able to i mean we I had we had it live last year i thought it was a great success but you know we really had limited numbers and a lot of that was because people literally <laughs> weren't able to travel to the country and so what are you going to do yeah. Um, but we, we, we did a really good job, I think, of having the online in-person kind of married together so we could have, you know, an equal experience that wasn't an afterthought. So 
um, if, if nothing else, I'm sure we'll, we'll do that again. We'll, we'll probably do that anyway, regardless, but that's exciting. Maybe the, maybe the hotel will have their sound system fixed. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe I, we'll fix it I, for them again. I, I, I got to completely rewire the hotel's sound system the night before our conference last year because we arrived and they were like, oh, yeah, a lightning storm took that out a few months ago. We haven't had it fixed yet. And we're like, oh, what? <laughs> we, we needed that. <laughs> we paid you for this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our news on conferences. So let's move into blogs, tweets, and videos of the week. Uh, the first uh, ones are a couple tweets. One by you, Brad. What? Tell me about what's happening to forwarded headers, or specifically the X forwarded for header in the next version of Command Box. Yeah, I put out a tweet this morning, people. I don't like to have any compatibility changes in minor releases of Command Box, but um, a security guy had pointed out to me a little loophole in the way Command Box obeys exported for headers um and i thought well gosh darn it um my rule is command box needs to be secured by default so out of the box you type server start it needs to be a production ready server unless you say profile is development or don't block the web admin you know you you have to peel off the security stuff which is kind of you know when command box first came out it was kind of like hey development server everything is open up who cares right and you know as people started using the production moved the other direction so the problem is um, the standard for web proxies are when the request bounces through a proxy and then gets sent off to the, you know, the upstream server, um, the proxy will add a, a header called exported for, which is the IP address of the, the origin, you know, the client, the person's browser, right? And so your remote server sees the IP address of the proxy. And if you want to see what the original IP address was, you look at that exported for header and you're like, oh, it was forwarded on behalf of this guy. And if it bounces through multiple proxies, you get a common limited list. Great stuff. Um, the problem is command boxes default lockdown rules use some IP based restrictions. So the if you tell command box to block the cold fusion administrator for external users, anybody coming from localhost, you know, 127001 is like, oh, here you go, right on in, here's the administrator. Um, and you can also do your own IP based lockdowns. It's, it's a, a general purpose um, feature of uh, the undertow server rules. Um, but uh, command boxes always sort of just blindly. Um, uh, was always sort of blindly accepting that header. The problem is if your command box instance is not behind an upstream proxy, which always sets that header, um, then a malicious user, well, I could just add their own fake header that says, yeah, I was forwarded for localhost. Sure, why not, right? And if you just blindly use the header, that could be used to get around IP-based restrictions. So um, I went ahead and I changed that setting to be off by default. Um, so if you're using command box in production behind the proxy, and you want the IP address, which trickles down to the CGI scope. And Lucy, you want that to be the real quote unquote IP. Um, you'll just need to tag toggle a flag on in your server.json. Uh, but it was important that I, I couldn't I couldn't just trust that by default. And so that's why I needed to turn that setting off. So basically the rule is if you're behind a proxy that you trust that always sets that header, you can turn that flag on, don't need to worry about it. Uh, but if you just have command box sitting out on the internet, not behind any proxies at all, uh, you really can't trust whatever value may or may not be on that header. Which, if you're not doing any IP-based lockdowns, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, but if you are trusting that IP address to be something that you know isn't spoofed, um, you know that depends on your on your setup. And Command Box can't detect that itself. So I'm just making you tell me now: Can I trust <laughs> the forwarded the forwarded by header? Because uh, if not, I'm not going to trust it anymore. 
But that'll be in Command Box 5.5, which will release hopefully as soon as Lucy 5.3.9 releases, which will be the Abolish Log4j 1.0 release. That's right. <laughs> Good segue. We Lucy 5.3.9 snapshots keep coming out, yeah. and they are getting rid of any Log4j 1 references and initial M1 support. So yes. for all and of this yeah, this is like the most common support thing that I answer right now with command box users on Macs is people have an M1, they install it with Homebrew, which is super easy, brew install command box, and it doesn't work. Um, and the problem is uh, Lucy's using an older version of a JNA OSGI bundle, which is somehow incompatible with the newer versions of Java. It's weird and lame, but it makes command box blow up and people are like, what well, doesn't it work? Um, so after bouncing around the backlog for a while, Zach finally, uh, kicked that ticket's butt. Um, and so people will have native M1 support and that will be coming out at the same time, um, as this, let's get rid of log for J1, because when the log for shell exploit came out, Lucy was like, well, we don't use log for J2. <laughs> We're good. We still use that really old log for J1. Right. Um, which has some critical vulnerabilities, which are not exploitable in the default configuration um, of Lucy. But with all of the um, the, the gun shyness that uh, came out of, you know, the Log4j and the oh crap, we're all going to die. Um, security teams anywhere just started flagging even Log4j 1 of any version as just a critical vulnerability. They don't care if you're vulnerable in the default configuration or not. They want Log4j 1 gone. In fact, they want everything south of Log4j 2.17 gone. Um, and of course, that's the problem because both Adobe and Lucy and Commandbox um, all had these older versions of Log4j 1, which weren't vulnerable in their default configuration, but it doesn't matter because you know, we've got government clients threatening to pull the cords out of the walls if we don't get rid of those Log4j 1 jars like ASAP. So we've been scrambling to do that. Um, it was only about a day's worth of work to get Log4j updated in, in Commandbox. Um, Lucy had quite a, a few more touch points. Several of the extensions were all using it. But Lucy uh, 539 is just like this far away from finally getting the last use of Log4j1 as uh, the access extension. <laughs> um, once that is done, um, then uh, I, I, so I've switched command box over to use the snapshots of Lucy um, so people can, uh, can test it or even use it if, if they need to. Because I know some people are really under the gun with their infosec departments they've got a um you know a not so polite deadline out of their way so uh as soon as lucy 539 comes out which has like a huge list of query query pull requests that i sent all sorts of fixes there uh there's actually going to be quite a bit in the 539 release <clears throat> there's quite a few things that have gotten in there uh but once 539 is out which oh and i see zach saying right now that he just fixed access that's awesome uh well i'll probably bump it after this uh after the podcast and once, once that releases, and I know they're going to do a release candidate for, for Lucy 539, um, once that goes gold, I'll cut Command Box 5.5, um, which also has gotten rid of its log for J Demons. And then anybody doing you know production server deployments can have a fully log for J1 free deployment, unless you're deploying Adobe Confusion, um, in which case there's still some log for one uh, jars. Uh, Adobe has said that their next update will remove those. Um, 
they've they've uh, they've mitigated them by removing some class files. But again, the, the government infosec teams that we're working with don't give a flying crap what's been done to them. They want the jars gone, like G O N E gone. Anyway, so um, there is no ETA on Adobe's release, but um, I do know that Lucy and Command Box are, are rounding the the corner to be able to have a release out there that has no log for J one, which um, is very important to the people that need it. <laughs> I get questions almost every day. It's like, when are you going to have a version of Command Box that doesn't have log for J1 anymore? And I'm like, it's coming. So anyway, <laughs> crazy, crazy times. I, you know, this talk about the audit and like all of the flags being thrown by these security audits and mm -hmm. nobody quite thinking it through. Uh, remind <laughs> me of an article. I'll put it in the show notes, but it was about... Uh, it was by Dan Abramov, who is uh, works on the React team at Facebook. Yeah. And he was talking about NPM audit and just how <laughs> it just creates nightmares of maintenance that doesn't need to happen. And he would talk about features <laughs> like this command line tool was flagged as like being vulnerable to an attack that would only work if you were running this on a web server. But yet it's still flagged and people <laughs> are opening issues on the repo and... And it just reminds me of that. We, we hopefully we can get a little bit more sane around those instead of just big, you know, denied yeah. stamps I mean, on everything. <laughs> it's it's difficult because infosec teams always trend to the safer side, right? If it's like, well, this might be safe, but we're not one thousand percent sure. They were like, get rid of it. We don't care. Um, but what what you typically have are you know the teams of people oftentimes making rules, um, you know about you know we're not allowed to have this jar anywhere on our hard drives and we have scanners to have to search for it. They typically don't necessarily know the programming language or understand the ins and outs. All they know is that they've seen the thirty seven ZDNet articles about everyone and their you know dog getting hacked, and they're like, oh my gosh, we need to get rid of this. Um, and, and oftentimes in the larger corporations and governments, there's, there's not a lot of space for, well, you know, hold on, you're, you're right, this is dangerous, but it's a development tool and we're using it in a certain context, you know, and they're like, we don't care, get rid of it. Um, and it is tricky to have those conversations. And I, I, I understand being safe by default, um, but it's frustrating sometimes when you feel like, um, you know, there should be more to the conversation. It's not always black and white, but at the end of the day, I mean, at least with Log4J, it's not a bad thing. It's it's a little annoying that out of all the, you know, features that could have been added to Lucy, right? You know, a bunch of development time was all poured into updated library that was like technically working fine. I mean, the good thing is, hey, Lucy is on a really in command box. It's on a, on a recent version of Log4J. Yay. Technical data race. Um, but it's still like, like, man, how many of my like tickets in the backlog could have been fixed? with all the hours that Misha and Zach spent chasing down log for Jane, you know, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the log, well, I mean, and the other kind of irony thing is, you know, log for Jay was sort of that big flash in the pan, not to imply it wasn't an important flash. Um, but like, you know, the eye of Sauron like focuses on log for Jay and like everyone's just, you know, looking at it. And the irony is there's probably like, you know, 15 other, little silly libraries just like Log4J that are equally as out of date everywhere in the internet. But, you know, nobody cares because it wasn't the big front, you know, headline for like a full month. Um, and it almost feels a little uh, like lopsided as far as like, everyone's like, oh my gosh, we're getting Log4J. But like, is anybody else like actually going through the rest of the dependency list? You know, I'm sure some people are, 
But, you know, how many people actually just like, all right, let's go through everything we have and let's make sure none of them are really old. Or how many people were just like, okay, well, log for today, check, move on. You know, and then they left all the old stuff laying around. Because um, yeah. it really should be a regular thing you do where you're looking at all your dependencies. But oftentimes people just need to check the box, which is also, you know. Right. It, it comes from having security be, you know, there's not, you're, there's not a person focused on security. It's needs to be automated because we're not going to, you know, we need it to be fast. We need it to be cheap. And so now you just get, you know, giant denialists of don't use these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Adam Cameron just brought up a little point in the, in the chat, which is oftentimes uh, ultimately the companies don't trust the developers to make the right decision. And I I've seen that as well. I mean, if the developers stayed on top of things and never left the old versions and were honest with the risk, they wouldn't need the InfoSec team breathing down their neck, but we all know the developers are going to be lazy and they're going to leave that old version for 20 years until somebody makes them update it, which is kind of why you end up with the, you know, Thor hammer security teams that, you know, the executives say you've got to beat it into them. Otherwise they'll never do it. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting scenario, but anyway, this, this nightmare is almost over ready for the next one. Yeah, there's, there's going to be another variant. Another log for j variant, you wait. <laughs> to come back to the M1 support, I think my favorite thing, oh, yeah. there's supposed to be a, you know, there will be a performance improvement, technically, but I think the thing I'm most excited for is it is very difficult right now to teach somebody to download and install an Intel version of Java on an M1 Mac. <laughs> and, like, you yeah. try to tell them that, you're like, they just look at you like, I don't get it. I did brew. Brew install command box. You're like, ah. So. Well, yeah. That, and and that, that's what's frustrating is it should be easy. It should just be brew install command box done. And then it's like, oh, well, it doesn't actually work. You got to do all. And then all of a sudden, the, the convenience of homebrew is like out the window. Um, but anyway, yeah. so many things out of my control, unfortunately. But. Yeah. Glad it's almost almost solved. All right. Let's move on to um, the Ben corner of the show. We have three blog posts from Ben, and we'll start with one about saying, I always designed the database schema first, then the cold fusion code. <laughs> so this is in response to the idea that you should be designing domain objects first and kind of mapping that to a database at the end. Um, no, I, yeah, I didn't read the whole article. I laughed when I saw it just because... Um, the, the, you know, when ORMs really gained in popularity, this was a huge talking point, which, you know, if you're designing a database first, you're doing it wrong. You design the models first and then the database just follows them. Uh, of course, if people don't really subscribe to the ORM, they probably don't care as much about that. I don't think I ever wound up in either camp, though. I think I was probably a little bit in the middle. Being a DBA for so many years, I can't not think about the database you know, when I think of a design of an application, I'm already thinking how the joins are going to work and where the foreign keys will be. So it's really hard for me to not think about the databases. So I probably uh, sympathize quite a bit with um, with Ben, even though I do think it's important to have a, a solid, you know, domain model that makes sense on its own. But yeah, yeah he has quite a, a lengthy <clears throat> post on this. Yeah, um, a lot goes into his uh, architecture choices for his app. One thing I really agreed with and taking away from this is if you're using a relation, a relational database, lean into what it's good at, you know. So often I see people doing all of the, like, validation checks purely in code. 
And then, like, there's no unique constraints on the table. Or learning how indexes can improve the queries that you're running. You know, you got to lean into that tool because it is powerful. Um, I think you get more vendor lock-in. The more you do it, the more you rely on. And, of course, just data types are a simple thing. Uh, some people that really lean into, like, you know, a lot of SQL Server-specific things, maybe their app can't run on MySQL, which may or may not be a big deal. But I, I do understand what you're saying, though, because I've, I've talked with people that had this very kind of black and white, you know, your database does one thing, it's just selects, inserts, updates, deletes, you know, no business logic, nothing, everything else has to be in the app. And sometimes, like you said, I think you, you run a little foul, a foul of missing some of the really, you know, clean and performant ways you could have, you know, push some some aspects of that into the database where it makes sense. Even though I'm very conscious to not end up with a bunch of, you know, business logic hiding down in my database, but there are a lot of things that database engines are good at. So it's it's one of those things where the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. And I've kind of swung around on both extremes over, over the years as a developer when I'm like, I finally have arrived. Everything should be in the database or everything should be in the app code. And then you know, like eventually you kind of wind up somewhere you're like, oh, well, actually... <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a great great conversation to be had, and the places where I work, a lot of times it seems to depend on on and if you have like a dedicated dedicated like database team, you know, with DBAs that are all wanting to do stuff in the database, or if it's just Cold Fusion guys doing the database work themselves, yeah. that seems to to wind up with different approaches. Yeah, I think I would say for most apps, you don't need to be looking into so much like store procedures as you'd need to be looking into um, like explain plans and indexes. Like those two things will speed up so much of your code. <laughs> um, so like if, if you're looking for that low level, low hanging fruit, you know, that's, that's where I would focus my, my database learning on. So. Absolutely. Yeah. If, it, if there's a, a query that's slow, you need to be able to know how to find out what it's doing and why it's slow. Um, or it's, it's, it's turned into a black box. It's like a mechanic, you wanted to fix the car without opening the hood. Um, and of course, I'm most comfortable with, with SQL Server, but almost every database has some kind of explain plan equivalent. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree with you. That's one of the most valuable um, bits of learning you can do for yourself is being able to tune queries. All right, the next one in, in the Ben corner is turning off the script protect feature safely in cold fusion 2021 so i'll be honest i didn't know script protect was a thing really um no i just oh my god I, i'm used to doing just kind of like ben goes in this post i'm used to doing the encoding and the the anti-sammy kind of stuff myself so i've never really thought about what cold fusion was doing um if you were like me <laughs> this feature was will scan the like the input scopes you know, form URL, um, I believe mm -hmm. cookie, and if it found script tags, it would it would replace the first one with um, invalid, invalid tag. tag. <laughs> so then, incoming code would have invalid tag. It would never have script. It would never get you know injected into uh, wherever you might be displaying that. Um, so that ended up being a problem because of how he was using a, a JavaScript a library. I, I've had to turn off script protect on most of the sites that I have. Um, and probably because most, most of my websites are content box based CMSs and without fail, I'm editing something and I want to have a little JavaScript, you know, 
tag in the code that I'm writing in the little WYSIWYG editor, you know, and you hit save and you end up with freaking invalid tag in the database. Um, I've, I know people say security is best in layers. I have always kind of hated script protect. And I think the reason is because it's, it's really more of a heuristic space check that guesses what you wanted to do. And it's, it, I don't like it because I think people use it in place of what you said, proper encoding of untrusted output based on where they're outputting it, right? So output in HTML or encoding, right? Encoding for HTML, encode for JavaScript, encode for attribute, all that stuff. Um, script protect is sort of like a little, you know, kind of like band-aid you slap on that says, yeah, this will uh, this will take care of it all. And of course, it's, all, it's always prone to false positives and there's no way to exempt it. You know, so it's just on for the whole server or off for the whole server. And I, I usually wind up with it off because it annoys the crap out of me. Um, it kind of sounds like it's um, like saying you can't have any log for one J jars anywhere on your hard drive. So. Exactly. <laughs> it, it wasn't a terrible idea. You know, I mean, people have done stuff like this on, in their own. I mean, remember when all the, the SQL injection Things were, you know, were going on around 2008. Actually, were you in Cold Fusion in 2008? I had, I was not even programming in 2008. <laughs> when I first started blogging, and there was a, a huge, like, surge in SQL injection attacks in general, but especially on Cold Fusion. And everybody was putting this chunks of code in their application.cfc that would loop over all the URL variables and would try to search for a bunch of kind of heuristics-based checks again of strings that looked like it might be an exploit. You know, and then the hackers would get smart and they'd like hex encode it and use all this stupid stuff. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, it was all, instead of going through and parameterizing all your queries, slap this thing at the top of your app and it might blow up half the pages because it gets false positives, but at least you don't get hacked. Um, I think there can be value in a stopgap thing. Like we're in the process of fixing our query params and the process of fixing our encode for HTMLs. Um, I've never liked leaving stuff like that on, but again, you know, do you go with the safer option that might have some false positives? Um, I wish there was a way to turn it off somehow on a page, you know, and like flag, like this is a page in a CMS that I expect to have HTML submitted and I trust where it's coming from, leave it alone. And then the rest of my app, yeah, sure. You know, yeah. the, the, the home the homepage of my app will not have HTML script tags ever submitted to it. Scan all you want, but they it was like I said, it was always it was all it was always on or always off, and so I always wound up with it always off, even though there was just a couple pages in the entire CMS where it mattered. But yeah, yeah it, I think one, that would be nice if it was uh, <clears throat> you could opt out of it per page. Um, the other things here in the article that I would suggest anybody look into um, was talking about the encode methods, right? Encode for HTML and HTML mm -hmm. attribute. Talked about OWASP and anti-SAMI, which is a way to, um, I think Ben has a blog post about it, say these are the allowed tags and the allowed attributes in this content. Uh, great for things like markdown. Um, content security policies, which is great in more modern browsers that you can say these are the allowed scripts that can run from these URLs or even, um, as Ben has shown before, with a, a nonce, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, basically a, a token that is on all of the ones the server generated, and if it doesn't match what the server said it was, then it will not run. So there's a lot of um, security tips there that you should know even if you have script protect on, because as he said, this only works on data that comes in 
through URL, uh, form, he um, headers, things like that. But it doesn't help you if it already is in your application somewhere in your database, gets in some right. other way. So. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that the regular expression used for script protect is uh, very basic. And it probably doesn't even catch like half the stuff that's on the, the like these sappy libraries will catch. So it's definitely a, a band-aid. Right. Okay. Filling out our Ben corner was the return of the Ask Ben series. So people mm -hmm. asking him a question and him answering on his blog. And this was about converting an XML document into a nested cold fusion struct. Um, spoiler alert, the answer is recursion. Whenever you... <laughs> Yay! Um, this, is a, so... this is a fairly common one that comes up over the years. Yeah. People want to take XML and turn it into a bit more, you know, native data types. There's, there's not always like a single answer because everybody's XML is built a little differently. You know, are the properties all nested tags? Are the attributes within a tag? So I've seen a few, I've seen a handful of kind of pre-built libraries like this, but they all do the same basic thing, which is what Ben's doing here at Recursion, which is... Nice. Yeah. So take a look. I think the the other thing to point out is there is a three <clears throat> bullet points where there are some assertions or assumptions about the data um, that might match your XML that might not, but <laughs> you need those assumptions in order to build the rest of it. So, so yeah. Right. It was fun. I'm excited to see what other Ask Ben's get submitted. Yeah, it's really, uh, really not a ton of code, but that's the beauty of recursion. I like that. All right. All right. Let's talk about finding a job on getcfmljobs.com. <coughs> there are 32 cold fusion positions, three new jobs this week. Uh, one that seems to have come up every week right now is a cold fusion software developer at Overland Park, Kansas. Mm, that's my neighborhood. I bet I know who that is. So I'm not sure if these are three different jobs that are coming up or they keep reposting the same job trying to get, keep it at the top. Ulig LLC, yeah. I, uh, I applied there once. Now's your chance. I'm just kidding. Don't leave us, Brad. Um, <laughs> a database uh, of developer in uh, Hobart in the... I think this one's in Australia. Hobart? Like the welder? Like Hobart, Hobart TAS, Australia. Hmm. And finally, a cold fusion developer at Halifax, Ontario, Canada. There you go. You can always check out the full list at getcfmljobs.com. So what's this module of the week here? Forgebox module of the week. The Forgebox module of the week this week is TOTP, which stands for Time-Based One-Time Passwords. This is, um, if any of you have used Google Authenticator, Authy, uh, it's built into some password managers now, like 1Password. This is the, I'm going to sign up for two-factor authentication, I scan a QR code, and now my phone generates codes every 30 seconds. So, so can you can you use the actual like Google Authenticator app or something with this? Yeah. <clears throat> so this handles all the stages of that. You can create a secret, um, the Authenticator URL, and even a QR code for it, scan it with Google Authenticator, and it will start generating codes. You can then validate those codes with the given secret to make sure that they, they match for that user. Um, you can also generate the tokens if you need straight from this library. So it can handle all of the things that you need there. 
Interesting. So um, does, does this use like a third-party web service then? No. So, actually no uh, the the <laughs> one-time passwords, the time base, they're, they're all, um, it's all math. It's all um, HMAC stuff. So hashes. Um, the time-based ones, is it uses the current time as the counter in buckets. Like that's what the 30 seconds is for. Um, okay. So given the secret, you can calculate every hash at any time, <laughs> which is, again, why keep that secret secret. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so, it's just math. So I mean, I use the Google Authenticator app and I have like five or six different VPNs and sites and stuff. And I've never really known like where these came from. I always assumed that some like remote web service like pushed here's the current password. But you're saying that's not the case. The app with the knowledge of the secret and whatever else it goes with can just look at the current time and tell me what the current code is. That's what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. Given oh, the secret wow. and the current hmm. time, you can generate a code. That's pretty nice. So how long before we had this in, in like content box? Uh, that's a good question. That was one of the reasons for building it. Content box already had two factor authentication. Exactly. Um, but the only one that was built in was Amazon SNS. So it would send you uh, a text, text message with the code, which those are not like going on any sort of, um, math pattern like this it's just generated and match what yeah generated. and that's probably why i assumed it worked that way because i was used to like the text or the email push which obviously comes from some server the text ones are annoying because i've been on like a flight using the in-flight wi-fi and i want to get on and do some work but it's a vpn oh, yeah. that only allows me to get a text password i'm like i can't get text messages at forty thousand feet come on yeah. guys but that would not be a problem with this <laughs> Um, if you want to just play around with it, you can actually clone the module, start your server, and the index page is actually a playground. Oh, um, nice. If I have it up, I might let you talk about something else. If, if I can find it, I can show it on the, the podcast here. But um, Was this was this sponsored by a client or just something that we did in order? Um, no, I... It was This was me scratching an itch. I just... <laughs> I wanted to work on something that wasn't like that had an end in sight, <laughs> you know, like it, it was a deliverable. <laughs> I could get it done. I've always yeah. been interested how it works. Um, it was, there was some interesting challenges. Like um, the secrets are base 32 encoded, interesting. which is not built in to command box. <laughs> um, luckily, uh, actually our friend, Mr. Ben Nadal has a base 32 CFC, which I, I took can't, in through. Can't you use the format? In or whatever function um, for that? that didn't. I didn't do what I needed, so <laughs> maybe. Interesting. Um, that was one nice thing about this being such a standard is I could pull test cases from lots of places. Um, the other fun things about this were learning about bitwise functions, um, and some limitations in some of our CF engines. Uh, they all assume your number is an integer when you do operations like bit and, uh, which was not true here. So I had to figure out some fun workarounds in Java. Um, I'm not actually sure how a decimal would be represented in binary. Like when I think of, you know, like all the bit and examples, you know, I went through in college, you're always just looking at some integer represented, you know, it was like, you know, an eight bit, you know, byte or something. And you're, it's very simple, but. If you have a decimal, what does that actually look like in binary? I mean, it's a good question. And um, the numbers aren't decimals in the code, but that's what Cold Fusion, or at least Lucy under the hood, was treating everything as a double. 
and then casting it to int, and that was a problem when the number was big. So, <laughs> um, so I have it here. Let me switch. Speaking over of big to numbers, um, Scott Steinbeck had mentioned in the chat earlier. Another one of the fixes going in five three nine Lucy is some improvements to really really big numbers in JSON, uh, where Lucy once you get past like twelve digits uh, decimals, I think would start like truncating and turning stuff into strings. Um, and I know that I think you might have worked with, with Misha on that too, but uh, there's some, some been some improvements to that, which I know trips a lot of people up. Got it. Um, so here's the, the index page for this module. And I can regenerate the secret, <clears> and you can see that's the base32 secret. This is the thing not to share. Um, wait, wait, can I, can I scan that with my Google Authenticator app right now? You absolutely can, and you will start getting codes. And, so oh, this is the oh. URL that is in that QR Example code, company. Right? And then you yeah. want to give me a token? <laughs> right <Yeah>. on there? 549-984. <laughs> uh, Validate. Token is valid. And if I change uh -oh. that to something else, invalid. Nice. And yeah, it I... shows up right here. Example company, and then in parentheses, there's example plus company. Yep. <laughs> that's obviously I what you have. Regenerate the secret. Obviously, that token isn't valid. Uh, most authenticators will let you uh, go like plus or minus a, a period, which is usually 30 seconds. All of that's configurable in here as well. Um, most that's of this really work was, easy. was based off of, especially the QR code stuff, stuff that um, Alan Quinlan worked on here at Ordis. So I found his shadow library after I had published my first version, and he um, his code helped me get to this this point, so... That's really easy, though, as far as, like, because I assumed it would be, like, a real pain in the butt to, like, integrate something like this in. But, like, you basically just started the server, and I scanned the QR code, and I, and I had codes, and you just put in the plumbing to check them. Yeah, so if you were coding this along in your app, you would generate the secret and the, the QR code. It's very um, recommended that you have the user give you a valid code before you save that secret in case they didn't save it right, you know? That's not a bad idea, yeah. Um, I've always but... I've always wondered, is there any sort of, like, grace period where, because, you know, whenever I'm doing my codes and I see the timer and it's almost at zero and I'm typing it as fast as I can, if by the time I hit submit, it's, like, two seconds past, is there, like, a grace period that allow, like, the previous code to still work for, you yes. know, 10 seconds? Um, so most of them are based <clears throat> that you can enter one, up to 30 seconds in the past and up to 30 seconds in the future. Okay, to allow for some clock variation or right. whatever. Um, so here's the code for this one, which is just one file here. This is not using Coldbox, but Coldbox makes the Java stuff a lot easier. Um, so right here, we're generating all of the config. This is the secret, the URL, and the QR code. Uh, though you can generate one at a time. And here's it where we verify the code with that secret and the token they gave in. Hmm. So just all in one file here. Here's that allowed time period discrepancy. So if you pump that up to like 100, you could go, you know, what's up, whatever that is, like 30, 300 seconds. And no, that's 3,000. I can't do math. 3,000, 50 minutes, which is probably not what you want. Yeah, this is a um, little lax, but hey. <laughs> but by default, it, it does let you go one in the past. That was what I saw kind of as the the consensus. 
Nice. Yeah, because I've totally hit the button just right as that little clock animation was expiring. <laughs> and it always still worked. And I always wondered about that. Yeah. We've, we've answered so many questions today. My life is all making sense now. So, yeah, now you can do all of that in Confusion. <clears throat> it's TOTP. If you install it in the Command Box app, you can inject it and everything's ready to go. And to you, clarify, you said it does not require Colbox to uh, stand Correct. Around? If you do okay. want to use this in a non-Colbox setting, uh, everything will work except for the barcode, sca uh, the QR code generation. For that, you need to um, either install the... Oh, I can't pronounce it. It's like CFZXING based on the, jo the Java one. Um, and configure that or bring your own barcode generator kind of thing. So, But everything else will still work. If you're not in cold box, you can just generate the secret, generate the URL, all that. You just can't do barcodes. Nice. And by barcode, do you mean QR code? Yeah, it's all the same thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I saw a cartoon this week of a two zebras talking, and one had the stripes, and the other zebra had a big QR code on the side. He said, come on, man, upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this next one is, I mean, it's technically our VS Code hint, tip, and trick of the week, but I'm hijacking it to do more of a full computer hint, tip, and trick of the week. Um, because this this was bugging me today where I was running into keyboard shortcut conflicts. Um, I love using a clipboard manager and I was had it configured to Command-Shift-V, which is also sometimes the keyboard shortcut for paste without formatting. <laughs> and so I was running into that and getting sick of it. And what else are you going to use? There's only so many fingers you can hold down keys with. And that brought up the, it reminded me of the idea of a hyper key. So there's not actually a hyper key on your keyboard, but the idea involves mapping some key to shift control option command. Or if you're on Linux or Windows, that would be, Shift, Control, Alt, w Windows key. Like, all four of those at once. Just mash them. Okay. So you map one key to that. I've mapped Caps Lock because I never use Caps Lock. <laughs> I and know, now, right? <laughs> so now I can hit Caps Lock and any other key, and nobody's done that as a keyboard shortcut because it would be really annoying to hold those four modifier keys down. But now that nice. it's mapped to one, I have this whole world of keyboard shortcuts open. So now my clipboard manager is, I hit caps lock and V, and it's up. Nice. So uh, I have here in the show notes ways to do this in Mac, in Windows, and if you really want to get into it on Linux, that one's a little weirder. Um, the Mac one uses an app called Better Touch Tool, and it's very straightforward. Windows, it's a, there's an auto hotkey version. I did see a registry hack, too, if you're feeling adventurous. Um, <laughs> but if you two run into keyboard shortcut c collisions often, hyper the hyper key might make your life easier. Do we need to have a little uh, disclaimer on our podcast that's like, if you break your computer following anyone or any of our advice, <laughs> it is not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Funny, that's a good question. but not our fault. <laughs> so... Um, question, can you use better touch tool if they don't have a touch bar? Yes, my laptop doesn't have a touch bar, and I use it. So, um, Yeah, we'll put all these in the show notes, and I'll try to paste them all in the, the chat right now. Um, but it has made my, my keyboard shortcuts much nicer. That's pretty cool. 
Um, yeah, I like that better. I remember when, uh, like, SQL Server Management Studio, like, 2008 or so came out, and they introduced some really funky, they called them chords, where it was, like, four or five keys all at the same time to do some stuff, and I could never, like, remember them all. It was just worthless. They might as well have not wasted their time because I used too many characters for me to remember. Um, so I like the sound of this. All right, we put it there in the, the chat, and uh, we'll have it in the show notes as well. Well, we have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you all for joining us live people. And thank you for anybody listening in the future. And a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. These are individuals and companies that are supporting our open source initiatives, like all of your favorite box products and this podcast. You too can support us on patreon.com slash order solutions. We have lovely perks for those who do including access to a private forum on our community website, an awesome badge to show off your support, and those supporting at the bronze level or up get a Forgebox Pro and CFCast subscription as a perk for their Patreon support. Now, we would like to thank those who are our Patreon supporters, and we will let Brad stumble through all of those names for us. Wait, what? Uh, okay. John Wilson from Synaptrix, Eric Hoffman, Gary Knight, Mario Rodriguez, Giancarlo Gomez, David Belger from... Oh, that's just his last name. Bellinger. We have pronunciations written on the doc. Jonathan Parrott, Jeffrey McGee from Sunstar Media, uh, Dean Maunder, Joseph Lamery, Don Bellamy, Jan Yannick, uh, Laxma Turtohadi, Carl Von Stetten, Dan Carr, Jeremy Adams, Jordan Clark, Matthew Clemente, Daniel Garcia, Scott Steinbeck from Agri Tracking Systems, Ben Nadell, Mingo Hagen, Brett DeLion, Kai Koenig, Charlie Earhart, Jonas Erickson, Jason Diger, Jeff McLean, Sean Odin, Matthew Darby. This list has gotten longer, hasn't it? I love it. Ross Phillips, Edgardo Cabezas, Patrick Flynn, Stephanie Monge, Kevin Reich, and Stephen Klotz. Our beautiful, beautiful list of Patreon supporters. We hope to see your name there next week. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks, and we will catch you next week. Show notes for this episode can be found at cfmlnews.modernizeordie.io, where you can also subscribe to your favorite podcast player like Spotify or iTunes. We also have the link to YouTube to find more videos just like this. The music used in this podcast is under a royalty-free license from Sound.com and Blue Tree Audio.